today and the topic of the show Craig is can you believe the numbers can we believe the numbers that we're given right and mm. what what um, we're going to have uh, a guest on later hopefully if we can get hold of him yep Roger Montgomery and he's got some real a lot to say about it but when I talk about the numbers I'm going to throw a few numbers at you Craig and I want to tell you if you think they're believable or not okay so I've looked up uh, there's a business, as you know, called Russell, which yep. are the massive fund managers. Well, they're actually fund of funds. They sort of, you know, consult the super funds and they mm-hmm. put all different investments together for largely for superannuation members. Uh, and what they do each year is they come out with a long-term returns report of the various sort of asset classes, right? Mm-hmm. So it's called the Russell Long-Term Investing Report and you can look it up and Google it. Uh, Sounds riveting. It is riveting. It is riveting. <laughs> but I want to just throw some of these figures at you and let me know if you believe them. So the tw- – or not just if you believe them, but what the significance of them is, I guess. So the 2016 report, which goes to the end of two- December 2015, they haven't released the mm-hmm. 17 one. Australian shares return for the 10 years 5.5%. Right, five point five percent income and capital growth. Wow, for a ten-year period, does that does that number surprise you? Yeah, it does. Yeah, what yeah. would you have expected, higher or lower? Or I would have expected higher than that mm. over the ten years. So to the end of December fifteen. To the end so. of December fifteen. Okay. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. So what would the index have been at the end of fifteen? It would have been about five and a bit. Yeah. Well, I think what that. Well, I don't know exact numbers, but if you think that the Australian share market generally gives about a, say, a four percent income return, yeah. So most of that return it's, would it's, have been just yield. just income, yeah. But but look, this, and this is the thing that really I find really interesting around these points because it's ten years, right, to December fifteen. But they then compare that to the ten years to December fourteen, right? Okay. Yep. And that figure is seven point one percent. Wow. So that, that shows you what a bad year can do to exactly. long-term returns, can't it? Exactly. Yeah. So like a good year, a good year, a bad year drops off yeah. one of them and a good year comes on the other and it's really, it's really significant. So if you, I just sort of ran some numbers on that, right? Yep. So let's say, let's say you invested a hundred thousand bucks mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, 2005, 2000 and, 2005 yep. right? It'd be worth after ten years one hundred and seventy grand. Okay. Right. If you took you take that return, you kind of compound it. Yep. You know, but if you invested uh, a year earlier, yeah. and you, you know, to the to, um, to two thousand fourteen, uh, that hundred grand would be worth two hundred. Wow. Okay. It's a massive difference, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess typically people talk about properties, and a good property would double every seven years. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, looking at that, that's even both scenarios under what. You'd expect, isn't it? Really, yeah. and that's actually interesting. I mean, the um, but twenty, and then if you look at a longer term, so yeah. this report also does the twenty-year return. So, I said to thir- ten years to December fifteen was five and a half percent on yep. average. Yep. But the twenty years to December fifteen was eight point seven percent. Right. So, which is more what I guess you'd expect yeah, from definitely. a long-term, yeah, average, isn't it? Yeah. But, but it's interesting that even a ten-year period sometimes. Is not enough. enough to get that yeah. long-term average, you know. If you get kind of a, so so it's just a, 
it's just interesting. Yeah, and I guess that also, do you have the other ones there for non-Australian markets? Because I, I find, yeah. and I don't know what you've found, but a lot of clients, and I think we have a bit of a tendency to have a local local bias. Yeah. So we want want Australian shares as opposed to others. Does it? What yeah. does it say for the international yeah. stuff? Yeah, well, international, if we say global shares unhedged, yep. right? So that's, you know, you basically, it's in the foreign currency. You don't hedge it back to the Australian currency. For the 10 years to December 15 was 4.6%. Wow. Uh, for the 20 years, though, for the 20 years, it was, well, not that much better, about 6.5%. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's just interesting. As I said, like, it, it just, the starting and end points sort of do matter. And I mm. think one of the lessons that I get from this as well is that, you know, if you, obviously, you know, if you put all your money in at one point in time, yep. and, you know, you kind of, you can be taking a bit of a punt of what that next 10 years is going to be. Whereas yeah. if you kind of staggered it in over a period of time, you're more likely to get that long-term average, right? Yeah. Which is what you could see, you know, that long-term average return of sort of 9%, yeah. 9%. I guess that's what you'd hope is a long-term yeah, return. Yeah, definitely. But, but, you know, the 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 individual investor experience can be can be quite different to yeah. that long-term average. Do you know what I mean? So I just thought... I, I saw a... Uh, we listened to a guy talk a few years back now and he was talking about how irrelevant averages averages can be. Yeah. And he um, he highlighted it by bringing up two buckets of water and he theoretically had one that was boiling hot and yeah. one that was freezing cold. And he put his hand in both buckets and said, on average, the water's warm, <laughs> which, is, which is a good way of highlighting the point that averages don't really mean a lot without context and I think that's what you're saying isn't it absolutely and I think what's also interesting is you know when I say when we say those returns what are we actually talking about right and we're talking about um, and I reckon now Roger's going to have a bit to say about this but we're talking about using the the all ordinaries index Mm -hmm. um, as the kind of as the proxy for returns, right? so that's that's not a that's not a fund. That's the index itself. That's, so that's, the, that's the kind. That's the general index. So right. That's, you know, so it's people, not not fee. Like that's not net of fees or anything like uh, that. That's, I actually think they might. Do you know what? I think that they might make some allowance for a bit of fees in okay. there. I think I think there might be. Mm. Um, but but yeah, once again, right? So who's though? I mean if you if you went and bought like that in index fund of the yeah. ordinary that's your return but yep. let's be honest like most people don't have that they've got like no. some other combination of investments correct so you know their return may not even be reflective of reflective that reflective of that either Jeremy yeah. depending on the sort of on how their portfolio is constructed it's interesting isn't it yeah so um and I think so I know Roger's got some pretty strong views about you know the way you know the, something like the All Ordinaries Index, how it's comprised, right? Because it's hugely dominated by the banks yep. uh, and finance companies. There is, um, you know, there's resources in there as well. The resources used to be a much, much higher percentage, yep. sort of pre-GFC. It's, it dropped quite a bit. I think it was up to about 30%. Um, and then it's dropped down to about 10%. I think there's been a big sort of market run on the resources, so it's probably up to about 15%. Yep. Um but yeah, there's a really big bias to those banks, to those sort of couple of sectors. You know, well, I don't know if you saw the uh, CBA's profit for the second half of the year. Did Five billion that? or something. Four point nine. Yeah. Four point nine. Yeah. Yeah. The dividend per. Sh- Do you see the dividend per share? Has it gone up? Two or? bucks. 
It went up by two bucks. No, they're saying it's two dollars. Oh, it's, it's no, no, no. The, the dividend is two dollars a share. How is, much? Do you know how much that is up on the previous? Years no, or? no. They're no. saying it's the biggest one though, which is yeah. pretty massive, isn't it? I just it is um, enormous, I yeah. remember GFC days. It, yeah, it got down to like thirty five dollars, didn't it? Yeah. Um, and you just you had people scrambling at that point to sell it, and yeah. um, I think that's the, that's the thing, isn't it? It's just the the twenty year term is more from what mm. you're saying with the numbers, almost yeah. what you need. It's yeah. we, used to, we used to talk about seven, didn't that's we? That's right, as yeah. a long term. But yeah, I think if you're getting into things with that twenty year mind mindset, yeah. then it's difficult to to come out without what you exactly. expect. Those longer terms, yeah, the averages are real. Like mm. yeah, the, the the averages are much more likely to play out. Yeah. Um, so. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. But you know, we're also talking about indices, right? So the other one, um, yeah, well, one thing that's interesting as well is the residential property, right? Mm-hmm. And they've got in here returns of residential property as well. Um, and, you know, they sort of measure it based on the average house prices yep. of, in the big different major cities. Uh, and for the 10 years to December 15, that was 8%. For residential property, and they've just averaged it across Australia. They've averaged it yep. across Australia, right? Yep. And um, yeah, for the ten years to fourteen, it was seven percent. Yep. For the twenty years, get these: the twenty years residential property, December fifteen. Yeah, you know, it's ten and a half percent. Okay, that's income and, and growth. capital growth. And uh, yeah, you know whether it takes into account you know some rates and like, I'm not, I'm not sure. Too, I'm not absolutely sure. But I have to say, you know those. You know, if we talk about you know, the all ordinaries index being a difficult proxy, I mean, I find you know, residential property because each property is so different and unique. Yeah, yep. Like to, to an average, like is kind of like the investor experience is always going to be really, really different to the average. Yeah, and I don't know. I had a I had a client this week. They were talking about they bought a they bought a property in Sydney. And yeah. then they did pretty well out of that one. That was yeah. one of the first ones they bought about four years ago. And then they bought another one up in Brisbane, which in their eyes hadn't been as good. And it, it, it almost goes for saying that you, if you're going to go down that investment path, to you'd have to do lots. You know, that's yeah. what we sort of spoke if, about. If you want to get the average. And, and diversify. Because you're going yeah. to have, if, if I said to them, if it was flipped around, if Brisbane was your first one, would you have gone again? And they said mm. no. Mm. So isn't it isn't it interesting after your, your first experience dictates yeah, what your later so ones true. are? So I've always said this that when people are investing for the first time, I think it's really important to get a a good win on the board. Mm. Um, and they always say like fail small and fail often. Yeah. Um, I had a, my first foray into investing as an adult. Uh, I'd invested in shares as a kid, but. I, I got really keen on, on shares and I borrowed 50 grand to invest in shares on the advice of a guy I was working with at the time. Your financial planner. Well, not really. <laughs> I was a planner, so it was my fault. So I just I invested in something that I didn't know enough about. I got one yeah. of those protected equities portfolios. Oh, yeah. And um, I paid a lot for it. And in the three years, it was actually still under. And the people that provided it called me and asked for 20 something thousand dollars nice. in, in three days. Nice. I was 24. So um, I think that's the sort of thing that you get a bit greedy when yeah. everybody's making money. And yeah. just because the guy who was 45 at the time had mm. everything out, owned outright, for him it might not have been a bad investment. Yeah. But for me, the first one, I just got a bit greedy and, yeah. and, and chased it. And, and, and it took me a long time to recoup. Yeah, yeah to recoup and then also yeah. to say, I'm ready to um, to go again. It hurt. It definitely it stung. Yeah. <laughs> it's Alrighty, now... Um, our SMS machine is here, ready to go. 
Um, it's probably easier if you SMS rather than call, to be honest, because if you call, we've got to uh, uh, you know, fiddle with them with our <laughs> equipment here a bit. But the SMS machine is 04788 uh, We're going to take a little song break and then see if we can get uh, Roger on the phone um, straight away. Roger? Roger, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Uh, how are you going, Roger? Thanks um, thanks a lot for speaking to us, and welcome to the show. Are you on the road, are you? I am on the road. It's a pleasure to be with you. Excellent. So, Roger, what uh, Craig uh, Craig Bigelow and I, Craig... Uh, hey, Roger. G'day, Craig. What we were just having a chat about before is can you believe the numbers? That's the topic of our show. And okay. we were talking about uh, share market returns, and we sort of looked at you know, 10-year returns to December 2015, which was sort of 5.5% income and capital growth. We then looked at what, what the 20-year returns was, which looked a bit better. But what I want to throw to you, Roger, is obviously that's, that's an index. What do you think the relevance of, that, of a number like that is to, you know, to the mum and dad investors out there? Well, in the, in the, you know, in the event of, or with the advent of, I'll start again. Um, with the advent of uh, index funds and exchange-traded funds, the number is relevant because it actually presents uh, an annualised return that investors could have achieved if they'd been in that particular index for that period of time. The challenge, of course, is that very rarely does the number that's produced um, over those long periods of time ever correspond to the return that investors actually receive. And that's a function of the fact that investors rarely stay with an investment for long enough to achieve the return that the investment produces. Mm. You know, they tend, there's a lot of research that shows uh, that investors tend to buy high and sell low, uh, and they tend to switch funds and even index funds, um, they tend to switch out of those at the worst possible time, um, tending to pull out of underperforming funds and going into outperforming funds at precisely the time the outperforming fund swaps with the underperforming fund. Uh, and so the investor return is often very different and usually lower than the investment return. Yeah. And you've also got, I suppose... You know, they talk about sometimes in the paper about these mum and dad portfolios, and they were maybe portfolios that, that you know shares that ended up coming out of the big privatisations, like you yes, know, Commonwealth tel- Bank and Telstra, yep. and and BHP is the most inherited stock in Australia, so yeah. it usually involves BHP as well. So yeah, look, the, that that that's probably you know. That might be more useful, but again, you're just talking about an average. It's not not necessarily the return that an individual list, an individual uh, investor who was looking at that number would find as relevant to them. So, yeah. what do you think? Some of the investor behaviours, you know, these things that change the returns. Um, so, how how do you guard against people making those mistakes if you are helping them? I guess in in that sort of space. Well, I think the, the key is, you know, we, we, for example, at Montgomery, we don't want people investing with us unless they understand that at two or three years out of 10, 
it's entirely likely that we will underperform simply because there'll be periods where high quality businesses are out of favour mm-hmm. and the sorts of businesses that we don't invest in uh, because we don't believe they're high quality, resource companies and material producers, for example, um, they'll have a day in the sun. And in fact, 2016 was just one of those years. The time to the time to embrace quality, we believe, obviously, is when it's been spurned by the rest of the market, and that's certainly the case now. And just on that, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because we were talking before about you know what the makeup of these indices are, right? And obviously... You know, the Australian market, you know, look at that All Ordinaries Index, it's, it's dominated by the financials, by the banks, and uh, less so by the resources, although probably leading into the GFC, uh, I don't know, what percentage would the resources have been of the All Ordinaries? Would it have been up to 30%? Well, well, what I can tell you is 44% of the index is made up with uh, the banks, BHP and Rio, Santos, uh, Telstra and the two supermarkets. Yeah. <laughs> so, so really, you know, as long as you own those, you'll get index-like returns. But here's the issue: the bank's growth, bank, broadly speaking, the bank's growth over the next three to five years is challenged. Mm. The supermarkets uh, are now being their margins are, un, uh, are being decimated by Aldi um, and Little Poco, uh, who are entering Australia. Uh, even further in the future. The resource companies are cyclical and Telstra hasn't grown its earnings by a dollar in 10 years. Mm, but the flip so side- when, you, when you look at the index and you say, well, you know, over the last, last 10 years, it's really gone nowhere. Uh, well, the reason why it's dominated by companies that have increased their payout ratio, so their dividends are much higher. And that means they're not retaining a lot of profit for growth. Uh, they tend to be mature businesses uh, and um, and as a result, you know, their share prices, you know, it might surprise people that NAB's share price today is less than it was uh, in 1999. Mm. Um, but that's so, obviously not including dividends. I mean, the flip side to what you're saying is that... No, in, that's why I said it's just the share price. Right. The flip side is is that those big bank companies and, you know, the supermarkets you're talking about have got really, really strong market positions, um, particularly the banks, you know, from a a legislative point of view, it's it's hard for foreign banks to come in and, and, and compete. Yeah, so so the, the banks are the exception in the group that actually can use their dominance uh, for pricing power. Mm. So the banks can charge pretty much whatever they like and everyone accepts it. The supermarkets can't charge whatever they like. Coal companies and, and resource companies and iron ore companies can't charge whatever they like. Telstra's margins are under pressure it can't charge what it likes i've just i've just upgraded my 100 megabyte uh sorry 100 gig um broadband to the nbn still with telstra and uh instead of paying 79 dollars, i'm paying 20 dollars more mm. but i'm getting 10 times the data mm. and foxtel for free right so so you know none of the big companies other than the banks that we've mentioned actually have the opportunity to leverage their market dominance into something that's valuable for shareholders, and that is pricing power. Yeah. Well, when we talk about the banks, the other, the other thing we're talking about, which I'd like your take on, is you know, I was reading before from the Russell you know, Long-Term Investment Returns. Uh, yep. you know, they, they publish each year. And the other one which I'd be interested for your take on is 
is the residential investment property returns, right? So, yes. so they quote here for the for the ten years to December fifteen, residential investment property returns of eight percent, right? Yeah. They quote for um for the twenty years ten and a half percent, and I think they use like an average of the capital cities and all that. So I guess I want your take on on the relevance of those numbers and also what what you sort of see going forward in that market as well. Sure. The, um, the number is irrelevant to everybody because nobody buys a median house uh, in a city. The median house doesn't actually exist. So the median house price... I thought that's where the 2.25 kids lived. If they don't have a median <laughs> well, house, where do they live? Well, the, the, I don't know which school the 0.25 is going to go to. <laughs> I think I might have been the 0.25. <laughs> yeah, they, well, they don't, they don't have a head. So, um, uh, so anyway, so it is just an average, and as a result, it doesn't bear any relevance again. There are large numbers of people that have made a lot more than that uh, from their properties, and obviously there are very large numbers of people that have made a lot less. Um, the mean, which is the average, uh, is uh, is going to be influenced by a disproportionately large number of people who have made less because they tend to be the people who buy cheaper houses and you need a lot more to get the average. So, um, you know, I think if it's not weighted, uh, then it doesn't reflect what really has been going on. Yeah. Uh, and also, if you mark to market today at the, you know, arguably the, the height of a boom in property prices, you're going to get a much more favourable average long-term number than if you wait another couple of years when I think prices will be either unchanged or probably lower. Okay, we're talking to Roger Montgomery, the Chief, Chief Investment Officer of Montgomery Investment Management and author of the book, How to Value the Best Stocks and Buy Them for Less Than They're Worth. So, Roger, I know you've spoken, I've heard you speak a little bit about uh, the property market, the apartment market. Um, I think our listeners might be interested on your, in your take on that as well. Yeah, so, so what we know is that on the supply side, there's, there's way more apartments being constructed than what can be absorbed by natural demand, which is measured, or the proxy we use for that is um, uh, a dwelling formation or household formation. Yeah. And household formation uh, requires about 150, currently about 150 dwellings. Uh, but we're producing over 225,000 dwellings yeah. per annum, and we've been doing that for uh, about three years, and it looks like it's going to continue for another 12 or 18 months. So, so there's a lot of supply coming in the market, is that what you're saying? Exactly. There's a lot more apartments than what we actually need. And the reason I'm going to talk about apartments is that's where I think ground zero is for a change in the outlook for property prices in Australia. So to, to think about the implications uh, of, of that, uh, if we first take, um, let's take Brisbane just as an example. Uh, in the nine months to September last year, uh, the number of apartments completed in, uh, in Brisbane within five kilometres of the CBD uh, was um, 5,500 apartments. Now, in the same period of time that 5,500s were 
apartment, 5,500 apartments were completed and delivered to their owners. Um, vacancies are in that five to 15 kilometre band out from the CBD rose from 2.7% to 4.7%. So there was a near doubling of vacancies um, further out. So tenants packed up and moved in towards the city. So if you're a, a leveraged apartment, investment apartment buyer, uh, and you did that, uh, you did that uh, five to 15 kilometres out from the CBD, well, you now possibly don't have a tenant. Mm. Uh, and that means you're under financial stress. Uh, now, in the next nine months, so the nine months from when we're speaking today to September, there'll be another 13,500 apartments completed in, five, in that five kilometre ring around the CBD of Brisbane. So what's going to happen is vacancies are going to go up, financial stress is going to go up at the same time that the construction boom starts to slow down, possibly ends. Mm. And when that happens, there's going to be a lot of people without a job because the construction industry in Australia employs about 12% of the workforce uh, and some proportion of them are going to be laid off. So you can see that what, you know, if there is a slowdown in housing or apartment building, you, you see that contaminating the rest of the economy. Well, I'm worried on the construction side if people lose mm. their jobs, um, yes. So that's just one side of the equation, though. On the supply side, what you've got is a, a diminishing pool of buyers. So on the demand side, you've got a diminishing pool of buyers and also an increase in the number of forced sellers and then at the, and interest rates haven't gone up yet. Imagine when they do. Uh, and then on the demand, on the supply side, you've got developers who will now be forced to discount their apartments in order to move them on because there's less buyers for them. And in December, the, the, the foreign exchange outflows from China amounted to zero, which means China basically put their foot down and said, we're not allowing any outflows of capital from our country. And that means there's going to be a lot of failed settlements as well, again, forcing developers to discount their properties. And we're already starting to see the, the, the beginnings of that. Uh, in Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney, we've seen, for example, um, uh, developers offering things like holidays to Asia. They've offered... Um, uh, a million frequent flyer points in some cases and in other cases uh, I've seen examples down in Donvale in Melbourne where a developer hasn't even come out of the ground yet with their apartments and they're already offering 10-year rental guarantees. Mm. So, so that tells me that they're under some pressure uh, to try and move inventory and those two, all of those things combined will ultimately result I think in lower prices for apartments. Yeah. All right, Roger, we're um, running out of time, but thanks again for your time. Roger Montgomery, the Chief Investment Officer of Montgomery Investment Management. Uh, Roger, I hope that we'll um, be able to call on you some point in the future. I look forward to it. Feel free to call any time, guys. Okay, thanks a lot, Roger. Okay, bye. Bye. Craig, what was your take on that? There's a, there's a lot of numbers, isn't there? And mm. I, I guess it's a... It's a little bit like the average thing. It's it's how you interpret the data, and um, he's obviously spent a lot of time researching it, which is it's difficult to argue with someone with so many stats. Mm. Um, but I, I think um, 
I think Australians love houses mm. and the shift to the thing that I see with the apartments that are going up, it, it means a fundamental shift in the way that we live. So more people in inner city in apartments and I just yeah, I, yeah. That's a question, isn't it? Is it is it actually a fundamental change I, in yeah. how people are living? I, I mean, the the, the number, uh, the thing that sticks with me the most. And I've read an article that he's written about this before. Is talking about you know the number of apartments being built versus you know uh, what does he call it formation of yeah. families or whatever. Yeah. Based on new, I don't know, units, people yep. who are going to be occupying them. Is there much more being built than there are people to occupy? Mm. And that that those numbers, I find resonate. Well, I mean, people being born, but then we've also got um, immigration as well that we yep. that isn't being born and birth rates and that sort of thing. So I guess they all do intertwine. But I I think um, we're a long way off some of these overseas cities like New mm. York and um, parts of Canada and that sort of thing, which people are really comfortable living in apartments, you know, mm. and I still think that we do have this great Australian dream of, of having a house with land, don't we? Like, I mean, that's... That's true, but a house with land, an apartment's not a house with land. No, I that's mean, what I'm saying. Yeah, I, yeah, think, yeah. I think people still like that ideal of having a place to put their, their clothesline <laughs> or play yeah. backyard cricket. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're listening to the uh, Finance Hour, either on J-Air or on podcast. We welcome your SMSs on 047-88-222-58. We're just going to take a short song and then we have... Welcome back to the Finance Hour on J-Air Radio with Ruben Zeller and Craig Bigelow. Now, Craig, I know you've been uh, waiting very patiently for this section. This is the Finance Fact, Craig. Well, uh Perfect segue with your topic of the day. Can you believe the numbers? And uh, I'll throw a couple of numbers at you, Mr. Zeller. Yep. 1992. Do you, do you recall the time? I was actually uh, finishing year 12 then. Were you? I just finished year, yes, 92. So. Well, this, this might be something that you remember quite fondly. The one and two cent coins were actually phased out at 92. Yes, yes. I've got a question for you. Do you remember what they did with them? Don't know. Dug a big hole in the ground, put them in there, and they grew into like one and two dollar coins. Or well, close. They they dug a big hole in the ground. <laughs> Did they? <laughs> no. No. They uh, they dredged them up and then they melted them down and they made the bronze medals for the Sydney Olympics. No way. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So really, fun fact is that the one and two cent coins were repurposed as the bronze medals for the Sydney two thousand Olympics. But they. Okay, so so for eight years, it yeah. took them eight years to do that. Well, it took them a fair bit of time to recall the coins. Yeah, um, and I'd imagine they were just sitting in, uh, probably at the time, who was the president, uh, the prime president, the prime minister at the time in uh, I reckon been, it was Keating. Yeah, Keating or maybe Bob Hawke. No, he was. No, nah, I reckon he'd finished by then. He's probably just sitting at the cricket. I reckon. I reckon it was Keating. Okay, so yeah. Keating sat on them in his, he had them in his uh, safe for a while, in his yeah. private safe, nice. and then he pulled them out. He'd done a few laps of backstroke in his, <laughs> his one or two cent coins, and he thought, how can we use these? And we pulled them up and made bronze medals. I still reckon there must have been some left over. They must be. There must have been some. Well, that, it didn't say that it used all of them, but it, and, and I I thought this was not true, to be honest, but so I'd... I did a fair bit of digging, and and yeah, in a in a true case of Australian ingenuity. There you go. There you go. Very very interesting fact. Very interesting one. Now, Craig, the next section is Craig's hack of the week. Now, we really need a bit of a musical <laughs> interlude for that. Just you, saying, hack of the week is not is not doing it justice. What could, we're about. Could you to give hear. us maybe a something off the key, off off the cuff? Can no, no. Just, just from your mouth, like just a bit of a beatbox. 
No, <laughs> no, I can't. But we're going to have to work on that for the next one. So, I mean, first of all, what is a hack of the well, week? Well, I, I guess this isn't so much of a hack. I, I, I just... I just like things that you can, for me, a hack is something you can try and implement really quickly. So for me, something that can be done and implemented really fast is what constitutes something that can help. And uh, for me this week, it's it's something about people's net wealth and or net wealth. Um, this is something I get asked a lot. And are you the same? People kind of want to know what they're worth? Yeah. Uh, what their overall yeah. balance sheet is. Yeah, they want to know. And sometimes they want to know what it's like compared to other people as well. Yeah. And, and what I find, and I'm not sure about you, but most people tend to include their their home, their principal place of residence. Yeah. Which can be a false representation of how much you actually have, yeah? Yeah, that's true. It really does distort things, doesn't it? So what Especially I, with house prices. Yeah, well, um, so what I'd encourage you to do is, is take out a piece of paper, really simple. Take out a blank piece of A4 paper. Yeah. Put a straight line down the middle yeah. and on the left-hand side, write all the assets that you have. So put your house down, put your cars, put your cash, put your super balances, yeah. put everything that you've got on the left-hand side. Yeah. On the right-hand side, put everything that you owe. So how much your mortgage is, anything yeah. you owe on your investment properties, credit cards, that sort of thing. Tally up both of the bottoms yeah. and then that'll give you a number, which is which is your net worth or net wealth. Yeah. Um, and then... That, that's your first number. The second one I'd do is now go to the left-hand side, fa- find the value of your home and remove that one. Yeah. And then look at what the number actually says. And to mm. be honest, I, I do this a lot with people. And what if that number's a negative? Well, then you're technically insolvent. Mm. So, the, And the reason I say that is that unless you are going to move to somewhere completely different to mm. where you're growing up or living now... Mm. You're always going to need that money, and so you're saying you're living on borrowed time. <laughs> well, I'd not so, not necessarily borrowed time, but I think that um, we can negatively inflate our view of how well we're doing. Yeah, that's very true. By including that, because we mm. we have this inherent belief that at some point we're going to cash out of our house yeah. and we're going to be sweet. Well, I think also you know, and you're going to cash out, but the reality is, is that prices everywhere are going up so you'll cash out and then you'll have to buy something smaller well, but, but the downsize the days of downsizing and releasing a whole lot of money i've seen it with clients a lot it just doesn't seem to happen so you know? so for the way that we look at that is that we we take any cash out money that we get from the sale of a house to yeah. downsize as a bonus and yeah. but what it does is it encourages people to act and take action now so yeah. have a look at that as your as your first bit of homework from yeah. us at the finance hour yeah. is have a look at it and work out what it is. And if it's red or if it's negative, then it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that you need to start building wealth yeah. outside of your home. Yeah. Now, that's a really good hack, Craig, but you do fancy yourself as a bit of a technical guru, right? And basically, the tool that you've talked about there bit of is paper. a piece of paper and a pen. Well, I mean, that, that means that no one can't... <laughs> <laughs> there's no excuse not to do it. <laughs> Yeah. Primitive paper works as well as these these apps. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks very much for that. I think we are starting to um, to run out of time. Uh, hope that you've enjoyed it today. Uh, we're on Jair Radio and podcast as well. We look forward to uh, seeing you again next week. And next week, Craig, we're going to talk about bubbles. 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 I won't say any more than that. <laughs> We'll uh, we'll go from there. I need a dollar, dollar, dollar. That's what I need. Yeah. Said I need a dollar. Said a dollar is what I need. Yeah. Said I need a dollar. Said a dollar is what I need. And I 
David Gouverin is now